In a world where boredom runs rampant, one podcast and website to bring the tired masses back from the brink of insanity, cannedairpodcast.com. At cannedairpodcast.com, read up on old topics, listen to past episodes, watch movie trailers, read up on the gang, and new movies and video game store. Candarepodcast.com coming this summer, Thursday. You're listening to the Candare Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Welcome to a very special episode of Candare, the podcast tribute to comic fandom. I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. I'm Jeff Holcomb. And <laughs> this is our free comic book day episode. And uh, the reason it has to be after free comic book day, as you've already seen in the title of the show, is we have an interview with Doug Jones. It actually took place on free comic book day. So... We'll get to that just a little bit later. We got a couple things to talk about first. Uh, the passing of Bob Hoskins. Uh, there's a new Gotham trailer released. And Spider-Man 2's uh, impact in the box office. So let's get right to it. All right, so The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, when was that, the second? And uh, we all three saw it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great movie. Good movie, yep. Uh, domestic total, $91,608,338. Foreign total, $227,495,959 for a worldwide total of $369,104,306. So most of it was foreign? Uh, yeah. Wow. They said in China it was big. He was big over there. So that... Beat out Sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's surprising, right? I'm shocked. Yeah. I guess it so far hasn't done as well as the first Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, I was reading that, that they don't think it's going to do as well, because I don't know why. If it's because it's just, people think it's too soon for Spider-Man from the, the Sam Raimi, uh, what's his uh, name? Yes The other no. three. Well, look at it this way, people. It's the amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a whole different series. Yeah, it's a whole different <laughs> series altogether. Come on now. That's if true. If I saw the new X-Men, then maybe I'd like it. But now we're facing the X-Men. Like if they called this one Uncanny X-Men, it'd be totally different. Oh, yeah. Totally different. <laughs> oh, my God. X-Force, if they came up with that? Oh, God. God. Yeah. Right. You know it's going to be gory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's all we really had to say about that. Just want to get those numbers out there and tell you people to go see it if you haven't already. It was pretty good. All right. Uh, last week, as soon as we finished recording last week's episode, we got the news that Bob Hoskins died at the age of 71 of pneumonia. He was uh, Eddie Valiant and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He played Mario in the Super Mario Brothers movie. Awesome. And <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Well, even though it's one of, like, the worst-rated movies ever, 
And even though it's hard to watch, it's still a part of the, my childhood. Dennis Hopper. Yeah, Dennis right. Koopa. <laughs> Kumbaska. <laughs> it's a shame, but hey, it's um, it's part of our history. Yeah. And he he also played Smee from Hook. That threw me off. I totally forgot that was him. Yeah, but before before you got here, we were talking about it, and I was like, "What else did he do?" He's like, "It was Smee." I was like, "Smee, <laughs> Smee." <laughs> that was such a great movie. I love that movie. Yeah. So, thank you, Bob Hoskins, for all the entertainment you gave us. Weren't they making a part two of Roger Rabbit? Were they? Yeah, that's what I heard. Jeffrey, yeah, no uh, I'm serious. All right, so we just paused really quick to check up on this Roger Rabbit sequel, and it looks like it's been contemplated and almost done several times, but probably not going to be done now. I don't think you could do it without Bob Hoskins. No. At all. He'd have to come back. And um, Well, not to sound weird, but I guess like the cartoons would keep going. So you're talking like if they were to do it, like do a all animated Roger Rabbit too, like where it's all outside of the well, human world? Or? We'll have it like that, and then somebody from the human world has to go in. You know, it's like verse, you know, vice versa. Well, then you're talking about Cool World. Well, uh, yeah. That's how it, <laughs> that was different because he, he made love to a cartoon yeah. and started turning into a cartoon. If they did it nowadays, they just <laughs> grab one of the Judd Epitol cast members and throw them in there and yeah. make all kinds of money off of it. And it probably wouldn't be that good, but oh well. We still have the classic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All righty. Jack, you had something on uh, Gotham, right? The trailer's out? Yeah, the trailer for Gotham's out. Yeah. It's going to be on the website. It looks good. It looks really good. Yep. Looks okay. Yeah, it I does. It, it does look good. Um, looks like Bruce Wayne's involvement, I mean, as a child, is much more pronounced than I I'd I've even heard a lot of stuff. Like they, At first, they were like, it has nothing to do with Bruce Wayne. It has right. nothing to do with him at all. It's all about Gordon. Right. And then in the preview, they show when Bruce's parents get shot. And Bruce comes up and tells Bruce... Or, Jim Gordon comes up and tells Bruce, I'm going to find who did this. So he's, uh, Bruce Wayne's actually going to be in it a lot more, I think, than everyone thought. Right. What is going to be that nagging kid? Did you find the killer yet from my parents? <laughs> no, well, Bruce. It, what I got from the trailer is it looks like that might be, I mean, some of the main incentive through like a lot of the episodes. Finding his parents' murderer, which I guess it would be, what, Chill, right? Who? Chill, the guy, wasn't that the guy's name who killed uh, his parents? I thought it was the Joker. In the older Michael Keaton movie, it was the Joker, but in the newer movies, and I believe in the comics, it was some guy named Chill who mm. killed his parents. I never thought it was really the Joker when I saw the old Batman movie. It just happened to be kind of convenient. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Change it up to make a blockbuster. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Jack, I'm sure you'll have that on the website. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I urge everyone to check it out. It is awesome. The Penguin's in it. The Riddler's in it. Poison Ivy's in it. Mm -hmm. uh, Catwoman's in it. What? And Gotham? Yeah. It's it's, it's them before they were their alter ego, their villainous egos. I just hope Bruce and Selina aren't running around best friends in the same school having recess right. together and stuff and then yeah, that'll oh, that'll just be stupid well it looked like it had a, there was a woman dressed up as Catwoman or like in some kind of like goggle that's Selena so she Apparently looked like she was older than Bruce Wayne yeah yeah it does oh so I don't know <laughs> give it girls a chance girls mature Jeff. faster <laughs> girls mature faster <laughs> give it a chance Jeffrey it looks good yeah it does I'm sure it'll be alright gotta be better than S.H.I.E.L.D. right Hey, if Arrow's doing as well it is, as it is, of course, that's a WB versus Fox, but still. It'll do well. Yeah. I think it'll do well. 
All right. Uh, we can recap on uh, comic book day a little bit. Mm -hmm. So uh, this year we did the majority of our com free comic book daying at uh, Pack Rat Comics in Hilliard, Ohio. <laughs> that place, uh, they know how to do a free comic book day. Heck yeah, they do. They oh, blew out all the other stores. They, it was incredible. They had, they had the Columbus chapter of the Ghostbusters there with a, uh, <laughs> an Ecto-1 and like a big blown up like Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and Slimer. They had a wagon selling pizza, game, all kinds of like games for kids to play under tents. Um, a whole handful of X-Men were there. Hell yeah, the whole Crawler, Rogue, the Cable, uh, Gambit. I think I saw Jessica Rabbit there too, speaking of Roger oh, Rabbit. Right, yeah, yeah, I did. We had Doctor uh, Who dress ups. We had a... Uh, but Cyclops was there. Yeah, Cyclops and oh, the uncanny, uncanny Cyclops. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, yeah, Deadpool. he was. I forgot about that. Deadpool. T with Deadpool in the back. We were all to go back there. I didn't go back <laughs> there. But. No, we didn't make it back there. But um, then, not to mention the artist alley, they had a bunch of uh, oh, different yeah. artists with all their uh, artwork out. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was, it was awesome. It was a good time. It was a miniature Comic Con. It really much. was. Yeah. We Good got pizza. to meet uh, Mike Pollock, the guy who does the intro for our show and uh, is the voice of Dr. Eggman, so it was cool to finally meet him. He does a lot of the, the voiceovers for the, all the, the Fox channel, pretty much. WB, too. I those found out. Yep, WB Kids. Um, but yeah, the uh, star of the day was Doug Jones uh, signing autographs there, and we had reached out to him before, the, uh, before Free Comic Book Day. And ask if he'd be willing to meet up with us after the event, uh, maybe get some dinner and have an interview. And, and he accepted. So, so we, yeah, it was it was uh, very surreal. It was um, good time. It was in a little place called Abner's yep. in downtown Hilliard that we uh, took him to. And so the recording was done uh, over dinner uh, in a booth in the back of the restaurant. So you, you will hear some uh, silverware and dishes clanking around a little bit toward the beginning. A little bit of music. A little bit of music in there. I think there was some Journey and uh, some Chicago <laughs> playing in the background. A little kid talking. A little lot. kid talking. But <laughs> as it goes on, it fades out. And um, you can totally make out everything everyone's saying. I think like the first 15 minutes of it were before our meal. And the, yeah. the rest of it was afterwards. Yeah. So you'll, you'll, it just, it's seamless, but you'll hear us say, well, we just finished eating dinner. <laughs> but I, I was nervous, I got to say, yeah. I, at first. Yeah. I was nervous. I, Hell um, of a nice guy, though. Oh, yeah. Beyond he, a nice guy. By oh, the yeah. time it was over, the nervousness was pretty much gone. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. At, but at the beginning, I was... I just kept thinking, okay, don't say anything stupid. And as soon as I hit record, I introduced him the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, did. Like I did. I said, uh, makeup actor artist. and makeup artist, when he's clearly not <laughs> a makeup artist. That was so funny. At least he caught it, though. Just yeah. To, I, I just felt so stupid. I was like, don't choke, don't choke. Second word out of my mouth, joke. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he was really cool and uh, could have... He hardly cared about the mistake, and uh, so I guess there's nothing left to do but listen. Yep. Roll so, it. Everyone enjoy. We're sitting here in Hilliard, Ohio, with the legendary actor and makeup artist. Uh, starred in the Hellboy movies as Abe Sapien, uh, was in Pan's Labyrinth as Fawn and Pale Man. Was a Silver Surfer in the Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Billy Butcherson and Hocus Pocus, all these great movies in Falling Skies, currently on TNT, Coaches. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Doug Jones. How are you, Doug? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. 
I'm, I'm, all, I'm not. Well, you did. You did said makeup artist, but I'm. I, I've worn a lot of makeups. Yeah, that, okay. that, that the wonderful Oscar-winning makeup artists have put on me. So yes, yes. Yeah, so there's. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's all. I just want to make sure people don't don't uh, don't think like he does that too. No, I'm not that talented. I, I, I wish. Hold a done to put some makeup on. Exactly. 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 So, uh, so you're wrapping up a meet and greet today. We'll meet and greet at Pack Rat Comics uh, here in Hilliard, Ohio. The, it was Free Comic Book Day, which is yes. a, a worldwide event. I'm told that um, publishers and and comic creators and stores all come together to put out a lot of free issues. Sure. And it's uh, my gosh, the store was it, was it was the store was so busy all day. It was crowded. It, it was <laughs> my first time ever doing one of these, and um, and I flew in from uh, from California for it. Well, actually, wow. actually, I flew in from Toronto. Okay. But now I'm going back to California tomorrow. So there you go. That's yeah. a long flight. Well, I mean, that's what I do. I just I, I fly around. That's what it's I probably do. nothing to you now. Nothing. Yeah, travel. It's just I, I I get most of my naps on on airplanes. Yeah. Sure. You know. So, playing in all these movies that are based on comic books, Hellboy, uh, Batman, being in the uh, Fantastic Four movie, are you a fan of comic books yourself? Well, a fan of mm, when I well, y- yes, um, I, <laughs> yeah, but you, you feel more's coming. Um, when I was a, when I was a youngster, I I knew the Archie comics very well. Oh yeah, I read them all the time, uh, and I saw some. I read some Superman, and, a, and I dabbled in Dick Tracy. Oh but that wow! Was, but okay. That was a, but yeah, but I didn't really. I, I wasn't like a, a rabid devourer of them. Sure. So when I when I started booking movies as, as an adult as an actor, uh, I had to like kind of research what the, what that source material was when I would book the role. I so see. I, I was not familiar with the Hellboy comics before I got that movie, and uh, I had heard of the Silver Surfer, of course, and then the Fantastic Four, uh, but I had to go back and do some research to get more familiar with him again. Sure. And um, which was great. Which is great. When, when you read that source material, it's like you get a, a sense of of style and character and. Uh, and you get a lot from the artwork too. For me, as a, as a visual person, that that uh, where I put so much movement into my characters, right. the artwork uh, that the original person came up with uh, uh, informs a lot of what I do on film. Sure. You graduated from Ball State University, 1982, uh, bachelor degree in telecommunications. Yes. So how did you get into miming and everything from telecommunications? How'd that merger happen? The telecommunications thing, that was, it was kind of, that's the title for the major that handled radio and TV broadcasting. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. So uh, my parents would not allow me to major in theater, even though I knew I wanted to be an actor. But, you know, it, good, sensible Indiana parents should not let their kids major in that because <laughs> the odds of getting a job are, you know, slim. Right. So uh, they were like, no, you have to major in something you can actually work in. So I was like, well, maybe what's close is what I was looking for. So radio and TV, yes. And then they changed the major name to telecommunications when I was halfway through my degree. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I learned how to do all the uh, workings of in front of and behind cameras and microphones for radio and television. Okay. Uh, everything from writing to, uh, you know, reading teleprompters and, right. uh, you know, and directing. Sure. Sure. And all that, all the on-camera, off-camera stuff. So, uh, meanwhile, I lived in a dorm on Ball State's campus. And when I was a freshman, there was a senior that lived in my dorm down the hall. Reed K. Steele was his name. 
and uh, he was a tall, skinny mime guy that ran the mime troupe on campus called Mime Over Matter. Oh, That's funny, okay. you see. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so, uh, so he would. You know, when I'm when I talk, I flip my hands around. I, I make. I'm very expressive with my facial expressions. I'm very, and the, the long, lanky thing. So he was, he was studying me when I and I wasn't aware of it. When we'd be in the lunchroom or when he, you know, would watch me walking to the bathrooms, he'd be like, "What is?" So one day he said to me, have you ever heard of an art form called mime? And I said, oh, like pantomime? Yes. Come see one of our shows and let's talk after. So I did. We did. And I fell in love with the art form just from seeing their, their troupe perform. Sure. Here was this, you know, stage with nothing on it and a bunch of people in black leotards and white faces and gloves on that were making magic happen with no words spoken. Right. You know, uh, creating worlds and props and things that weren't there. And I could see all of it. Right. I was laughing. I was crying. I was like, oh, my gosh. So that's when I realized that communication and performing, can, it, it, it's so much more than just verbal dialogue that comes out of your mouth. It's also your entire body communicates. Your, right. your posture, your body language, your gesturing, your facial expression, your, your demeanor all comes out physically and visually every bit as much as it does verbally so so i think every actor should should round out with that art yeah. form anyway uh so now it just the mime kind of translates into what i do now in creature suits right it just kind of helps because those have to be so physically aware right when you're in a, in a makeup or a costume that makes you another worldly creature long answer sorry no, no you're fine you'd have to stay agile for so many of the different roles you've played, what's your process of keeping yourself in shape for the next role? Uh, well, I, I wish I could tell you, you know, I have a very strict regime and I keep to it. Like, <laughs> actually, between, between jobs, I'm kind of a lazy ass. And when I have something coming up that's like, oh, that's going to be physically demanding, uh-oh, I better get in better shape. Get in. I get into, I get, I keep myself in shape out of sheer fear. <laughs> Just sure. that I will fall down on the job or collapse under a heavy thing or something. Right. Um, and the older I get now, I'm 53 now, so the fear is even more prevalent because it's like, okay, I'm not 20 anymore. I can do this. I can. So, uh, so I, I stay in, in good shape just because I'm terrified of not doing it. You sure. know? Yeah. I understand. Does the makeup end up keeping you in shape a little bit with it being so heavy sometimes? Well, when you if I'm on a job that's very physical, I can I go home at the end of the day feeling like I have had a workout. Right. Especially uh, you know if you're playing another worldly creature of some sort, the posture and the 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 stance can be very squatty. Yeah. For many of them. One of those jobs, it's like you, you absolutely, your, your lower back, your abs, your your thighs are getting a lot of like, uh, you know, those major muscle groups are getting a sure. lot. So yeah, so uh, like when I did the time machine, for instance, way back in the in 2001, we filmed. Oh, wow, I remember that. Uh, yeah, I was I the, the lead that. spy Morlock in that. Really? And it was very uh, uh, spindly, squatty characters that had their, you know, our, our knees were up by our shoulders most of the time. Sure. And getting in and out of that position took some strength when you're in a full heavy prosthetic makeup with mechanics built into the face, arm extensions on, so very top heavy, uh, and trying to make that seem organic and agile like you know we're just superhuman right it, that's the tough part is playing a superhuman character when you are a guy in a suit and you have one yeah <laughs> just, you know it's like oh gosh you know i have to when the camera rolls i have to look like i've got all this strength and power and what's where, where does that come from right. and truth is i can barely get myself from my trailer to the set you know what <laughs> i mean sure. without, without having somebody help me <laughs> right. 
And the first time I ever saw you on television or remember you was as Mac Tonight. Uh. And I, as a child, was a big fan of it. Um, I know that sounds silly, but it was came at a time when like the California Raisins were yeah, big yeah, no, and uh, a lot of this, like the showbiz animatronics. Mm -hmm. It was awesome to see you, uh, or just to see Mac Tonight on TV. Uh, how'd that happen for you? Well, that was one of, one of my first, that was one of, one of my early jobs. It was the, like the fourth booking I ever had as an actor. I had done a couple, it was, uh, I did like three commercials before that. And it all happened within a, a few short months in 1986. Uh, so I booked the Mac Tonight spot, and and it was it was a four commercial blast to start off with, a regional campaign that just started in California. Okay. So, but, but as a young actor, with this being like one of my first few jobs, it was like ah, oh, to book four commercials that would be be shooting in one week, and like that was that was a good paycheck for right. me, the stage I was at. And it's McDonald's, it's a huge franchise, but see, even though it was a regional campaign, I knew that like, okay, well, it'll be a good one, I'll get it. So, and they were trying to boost their, 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 their sales for after 4 p.m., the nighttime crowd. I see. Uh, so, what happened was they aired the first spot, when the clock strikes, hey, half past six, B. And it, it caught on, like that's it. a lot, there were a lot of kids like you that, that fell in love with him. And a lot of adults fell in love with him too. Yes. He had that Bobby Darren kind of love you babe, nightclub mm -hmm. kind of guy. He yeah. always reminded me of uh, Ray Charles Ray too. Ray Charles, the, yeah, right, with the sunglasses on, yeah. the Ray Bands. At the piano. At the piano, rocking back and forth, <laughs> moving and grooving. So it really did. It was catchy and it caught on. Uh, and so the sales figures did what they what McDonald's wanted them to do. Huge hit. And they um, so they took the campaign nationwide and made more commercials to, for the new com national campaign. Then it went worldwide, and we made more commercials for the worldwide campaign. Wow. And then uh, after the course of three years, I had done 27 commercials as that character. So that was a huge deal for me. Wow. And, and from that came the Happy Meal toys of Mac Tonight in, a, in all the Happy Meals. Uh, then they were all kinds of other products with my image on it as Mac were uh, like sippy cups, uh, uh, wow, uh, lunchbox. Yeah, beach towels. There wasn't any like cartoon or anything like that, was there? I feel like there might have been something I like that. I think they, it seems to me they tried to do a Mac Tonight cartoon. I'm not sure if it hit or not. I, that's a good question. I, uh, yeah. I don't remember. I don't either. Let me show you what I brought with me real quick, Doug. Uh oh, I'm about to be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do any singing? No, on the commercial, they, they, I, I do sing, but they wanted to, uh, they wanted to have somebody who sounded more. I think probably closer to the Bobby Darren side. Yeah. I've had this since 1988. I played with it many times. Oh, there it is. <laughs> it's the one of the Mac Tonight Happy Meal toys, and this is Mac on different forms of transportation. It was, it was the whole, uh, the vehicle set. This is like a, a ski do or sorry, like a what would you call this? A jet ski. A jet ski. There you go. And there was also a motorcycle. There was a jeep. There was a convertible car. There was a scooter. There was a airplane, I think. Oh, yes. I think there was. With wings and little red wings. Yeah. I was always jealous of the neighbor kid who had the motorcycle one. That's the one yeah. I always wanted. But um, I've got the full set at home. I got them. All. They're still wrapped in plastic, of course. Because oh wow. I want them to retain their value. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might have you sign that a little bit later I mean, if that's we can, okay. We can do that. Yes, we can. Awesome. All right, we just finished a chicken salad and BLT sandwich here with Doug. Yes, and I've still got some onion rings crunching. So if you hear if you hear stuff in my mouth, Mitch. 
good. It was a delicious meal, I gotta say. <laughs> I do. You'd think I'd have better breeding than that, but no. <laughs> There's food on the table. All right, so it's it's no um, secret that you've done a lot of work with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, that, including Hellboy movies, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, with him, is it typically a, like a collaborative effort? Is everything already laid out for you when you get there? And how does how does it work working with him? Mm, well, he is a, he is a, a a genius at collaboration, and he's a genius on his own. He's a, just a plain genius. Sure. And one thing about a really smart genius person is, uh, even if they come up with a great idea and a great story to tell. Uh, movie making is the most collaborative art form there is. As a painter or, a, or an author, you get to sit in the privacy of your own home and in your studio and create things. Right. When you're making a movie, all the departments have to come together. And that means that uh, who's ever guiding that ship, the director of the film, uh, has to pick all those department heads, uh, people that he trusts, and uh, people whose work he knows and and can can guide along. But they, so they all bring something of their own to the table. Sure. That includes his his cast of actors. Uh, so um, so with him, it's it's very much uh, he and uh, the movies I've been in. I, I met him on Mimic in 1997. Okay. Uh, and I'm not. That's the one I'm not even sure. I need, I need to look these facts up before I do interviews. But uh, I just know that, that then coming back to do the first Hellboy movie five years later, he wrote the script for that. He wrote the script for Pandal's Labyrinth. He wrote the script for Hellboy 2. He co-wrote the script for uh, Crimson Peak that I just finished. Uh, so, so he writes what he directs. And that when you read his scripts, you get a lot of his vision and you know how he's going to direct it. You know that it's going to be directed as you read it. Uh, right. there, there's not going to be someone getting it their own interpretation on it um, as will happen sometimes when you have a script that's taken over by another director and they're like well here's what I want to tell sure and they rewrite on the day and whatever um, uh, Guillermo you, what, what you read is like you can envision like oh this is gonna be great because you know right. uh, which I did with Pan's Labyrinth when I read that it was like oh my gosh the most beautiful thing I'd ever read in my life it was a wonderful yeah. story it was yeah. awesome and knowing yeah. that he yeah thank you and, and knowing that he was going to direct it meant that uh, like what I just read will come out on film vividly as I as I envisioned it in my own little sick mind so uh, uh, so there's that the script itself informs quite a bit then uh, uh, Guillermo has this shorthand with actors where he um, he he, he can, can size up a person uh, faster, better, deeper than anyone else I've ever known. He he gets he kind of figures out who he's talking to, uh, and and with his actors he figures out what the control panel is uh, on you, um, what uh, what buttons are created with you that he can push to get a certain reaction out of, or you know what how is he going to direct you on the day? And I noticed that when we were doing Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, when uh, when he would direct me and Ron Perlman and Selma Blair very differently. From from each other, you know, we, sure. we would, uh, different things would motivate each of us because of our personality types, you know, right. so uh, he, his demeanor, Guillermo's demeanor would, would change when he would talk to each one of us, uh, knowing that if I need to get a reaction out of you or a an action out of you or an emotion out of you that I'm not getting yet, here's how I can get that out of you. And so he dealt with Selma and Ron and I very differently from each other because of who we are and, and what he knows about us as people. That's a genius that knows how to sure. do that. It exactly. really is. Um, so as far as like building a character from the ground up with him, the script, 
an early meeting with him comes into play where he'll tell me what quirks or what kind of vibe this character should have. but, but that conversation can be very short. Uh, for Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, he saw my demo reel uh, when I came in to meet him for that one. That uh, On my demo reel was the, was the uh, gentleman from the Hush episode of Buffy. Oh, yeah. A clip of that. Okay. And my hands were very fluid in that, and my head was very tilty and very gentlemanly and very poised and postured and polite. And he saw that clip and he said, that, something like that is great for Abe. <laughs> so I saw, okay, and that was like on my day one. Right? You know, I, I didn't even have the job yet. Right. Uh, the next thing I did was, uh, was study my fish at home uh, in my little goldfish tank. Really? Yep. And I just seeing how, like, I had the fish in my house because of their calming influence. They, they, sure. uh, they're very, they're very like yes. tranquil to watch. Yes. Abe Sapin was a very tranquil calming member of the BPRD team. So I wanted to translate what I saw in that fish tank into the character for the B, B, for the team. That's amazing. So uh, looking at how the goldfish heads kind of went, you know, dart and, and then their bodies would flow very gently behind in the, in the water and their fins would kind of just kind of be very, very... Like a dance almost. Loose. It's a dance. It's an angelic yeah. dance they do. Uh, that's, I saw it kind of in one of my test costume fitting, uh, makeup test, uh, I didn't know I was being watched. I was, I, they, had, they had the head on, they were just trying the head and the, and the neck piece on. They were building the body one piece at a time, and so I went in for several, several fittings to make that character happen. And um, in one of my early fittings, I was standing in front of a big full-length mirror in the, in the back of the shop at Spectral Motion in Burbank, California. And I'm kind of looking at myself through the pinholes, like the, the tear ducts that I had. So I, I didn't have much vision. Sure. And so what I could see in this full-length mirror, I kind of started, you know, moving my head and darting it a little bit, and then doing that, and then seeing what happened with my with my hands, with their being very, uh, you know, very fluid and very, uh, uh, you know, catching the water and sort of sure. fanning out and back and forth. And off, I didn't know Guillermo was there that day, but he'd stopped in to ha- have a look at what we were doing. And he goes, that, keep that, I like that. <laughs> so that's all we ever talked about Abe Sapien's movement. From uh, That's all we ever said. He saw something, he liked it, I knew what he meant, because he likes that attitude, that physical attitude. I will right. I will keep that in the character, and so that's all we ever spoke about it. That uh, so it. that's a shorthand we have developed. Uh, my, one of my favorite shorthand stories with him was in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. I played three characters in that movie. And this is, this is again, a director who now loves working with me, bless his heart, for whatever reason. I, it's not, I don't think it's because I'm good. I think it's because I keep saying yes. Um, uh, I doubt but, that. Well, you're kind. <laughs> um, but he, uh, uh, he had me play the Angel of Death character as well. Uh, and also a third character called the Chamberlain. And if you remember the Hellboy 2, our evil nemesis was um, was Prince Nuada, the uh, the elf from the underworld, yes. who the badass, long-haired white elf. Exactly. Um, and he, at the near the beginning of the movie, he goes back down to the underworld to confront his father, the elf king, and to get a piece of the crown from the, the dad that will help complete his you know world domination power plot. Right. So, but in order to get to the king, he had to pass through. The the, the, the Chamberlain, who holds the, the, the chamber doors closed, and I kind of I like the butler. I'm the king's butler, basically. And of course, this is being a fantasy world. Uh, Guillermo had them design this crazy-looking 
squared off headed, you know, very pale skinned character called the Chamberlain with, with these two little blinky eyes that were way up here, mechanical, uh, higher than my forehead. And um, so it was big and long, and I had these long arm extensions with, uh, with very spindly long fingers that, that were longer than skinnier than my own, and they were puppeteered by somebody off camera. And I, had, I was up on blocks, so I was like much taller than I, I was about seven feet tall. And um, so Guillermo said to me, uh, all he said was, he, uh, you know, he, since you can't even, you can't see what I'm doing at home here, but uh, uh, he put his hands out to the sides of his face, like sort of fanned out. And he said, Doug, for the Chamberlain, I just kind of want to see him. Uh, he, he's sort of like a, uh, I just want him to be uh, ill. <laughs> like that. That's all he said. He made that sound effect, and he brought his fingers together in like a very, like, sort of, uh, almost a prissy kind of a way. Right. And so I was like, oh. And a sound effect and a motion of his hands. I was like, done, good, got it. Thanks for this talk. Right. So that was that was all we ever discussed about the Chamberlain's movement and demeanor and attitude and persona. So uh, so that is that is a gift of a shorthand that we have with each other. Um, we just did the same thing on, on Crimson Peak. I played a, it's a great haunted house story uh, uh, set in Victorian England, and oh, it's going to be beautiful and opulent and drippy and wonderful uh, and terrifyingly scary. And that's where I come in. So I'm not allowed to tell you what I played exactly, but it's a haunted house story, so what do you think I played? <laughs> okay, so um, <laughs> so that was also more of a, you know, on the day, one, one day his direction to me was, Dog, your hands. Give me more uh, spaghetti. <laughs> okay, yes. got it. Got it. Ding. Done. You know exactly what that means I when he says it. Of course, of course. That's it's amazing. Do <laughs> <laughs> you ever scare yourself seeing yourself in the makeup once you get it on? Hmm. Or just kind of believe that, hey, that's me. Right. Well, I never scared myself. Um, hmm. Because, you know... You're watching the makeup come on you one piece at a time. Mm. I've seen concept drawings ahead of time too. So I, I know what what the original artwork was that the, the character's based on, or whatever. But one of the the best reaction I ever got gave I ever got I ever gave in a makeup test fitting was was the Hellboy one, the first Ape Sapien test fitting that we did. When it was full body and they were gonna bring it all together for the first time, colors, shapes, everything. I was in makeup that day for at least eight hours. If it wasn't, no, it was more like nine or 10. Um, and you know, the, the makeup, I get asked all the time, hey, you know, what's the longest makeup you've ever been in? It's always a test makeup. Because we're not filming that day, they don't have to get me on set by a certain time so they can take their time nice. to tinker and go, oh, I like that stripe there. Oh, I like that color there. Airbrush, ooh, that blends well or that doesn't blend well. Or I gotta get that edge down. They can take the time to do that. Right. So my Ape Sapien test fitting day was at the, at the creature shop in Burbank uh, at Spectral Motion. And I had spent so, it was getting so long and I'd been standing for a lot of it because they had to make up, I was wearing sh black shorts and they had to make up everything else. From my legs, my arms, my torso, my face and neck and head. And sure. All of it had to be covered with something. So that took forever. It took like, you know, three makeup artists uh, a lot of time. So half the time I was, I was aimed away from the mirrors. I was, I had somebody working behind me. I wasn't able to sit down. I had to stand and hold a squat for them to get, uh, you know, between my thighs or whatever to, right. to paint things. 
Um, so you get very intimate with your makeup artist, by the way. Okay. So, uh, so after the, the last bits were going on and the and the and the, the overall like uh, proportions, I hadn't seen all that really come together in the mirror yet. Finally, we're done. We're about to walk out into the, into the main part of the shop, and Guillermo had come to the to the shop to to have for the great unveiling of me in my first test makeup as Abe. And uh, I turned around and caught myself in the mirror, and I was like, oh, oh my gosh, goosebumps, and I teared up. I had never teared up looking at a makeup in my life until I looked at Abe for the first time. I was like, this? So I said to Steve Wang, who designed uh, my, my practical effects makeup look for that. He designed it, and, and it, was, it took a team. It takes a village to make that come together. But, but Steve Wang, it was Steve Wang's concept that, that, uh, that from the comic books to, to film. Of course, Mike Mignola drew the original pictures in the right. comic books. Right. But uh, Steve Wang was there, and I said, Steve, this is the most beautiful character I have ever been in my life. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was beautiful. And, I was, and, I, and my lip was quivering. I was just so emotional about it. That's so, awesome. yeah. yeah. You definitely have a passion for what you do. Well, I, I, I guess I do. The passion is very much helped by, by being able to work with the best artists in the world. Everything from makeup to directors to writers to editors to musicians and sco music scores and visual effects. I mean, it does take a village to make a movie. And uh, sure. so uh, uh, I've, I've, I've been very blessed to work with the best in the world. I really have. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. You've also been in some music videos. Um, wow. Yes. Uh, let me see. Where is it? Madonna's Bedtime Story, mm -hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soul to Squeeze, and Marilyn Manson. I don't like the drugs, but the drugs like me. Yes. So what, how did this happen? What was it like right. working with these people? Well, especially me. You see me, I'm like this, yeah. uh, you know, I'm an average middle-aged white guy, and I'm like, wait, what am I doing in a Marilyn Manson video? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, uh, uh, whoever, whoever was directing that Marilyn Manson video, uh, uh, came to my agency at the time and said, "Yeah, we'd love to get Doug Jones." Yeah, and this is that was back in, I think, 2000. I'm not sure when that was. So um, I was not a a. I, I, I didn't have any element of fame at the time. So I got a lot of referral jobs. People who had worked with me, people who knew me from the creature effects world, whatever. Sure. Uh, so somebody who was involved in casting that that music video came looking for uh, me. And we'd like to get Doug. I didn't have to audition for it. Just, you know, Marilyn Manson video. So my agent called and asked me that. Do you want to be in a Marilyn Manson video? And I said, oh, great. Uh, sure. Because I, I, I like music videos because it's a different style of filming. You're filming vignettes. And you don't have to worry about, about context and story as much. Sure. Uh, there's not as much of a through line. It's more about the imagery and the, uh, the, 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 the snippet moments. Right. So it's it's uh it's an it can be an, an easier shooting day, but it can also be a very artsy shooting day. You know, when you, when you worry about colors and shapes more than than uh, storyline so much, right. it's, a, it's a different animal, and I liked it. So I said, sure, I I, I love this. Now who's who's I don't know who Marilyn is. Is is she a good singer? Is she <laughs> is she what style is she? I was saying, not realizing that Marilyn was a fella. You had never really heard yeah, of I had, never. hadn't heard of him. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, we, that's not my style of music. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a bit rough. It's a bit hard, and it, it draws a crowd that I am not. That's what intrigued me about it, because Why Doug be? Jones, the nicest guy on the face of the planet, in a Marilyn Manson video, it, it just didn't add up. So that's why I was curious. Yeah. So <laughs> no, the, the, uh, the the that video was um, the, the the basic vignette storyline that was going on in, in my bits. 
I was one of many people who had, it was said a little bit in the future, with what television has done to us. Right. And so these people had, had enormous eyes. That had, yes. So we had prosthetic eyes put on our face. And I think that's what they thought of me. Because I, I had been known at the time, for, still, for wearing a lot of prosthetics. Sure. So, so that was the bit. Uh, they just showed they showed families, and we uh, sitting in living rooms, and, and people affected by what what uh, what watching a screen all day has done to us. Right. Uh, so it was kind of kind of quick and dirty one day shoot. Uh, I was also like a one day shoot for uh, the Madonna video, the bedtime story video, and that was another one that like. They wanted me because I was tall and skinny. They wanted two tall and skinny people in uh, smoking jacket style bathrobes to be sitting on a bench in a fish pond of water, holding hands with each other. And then our heads were replaced with hand mirrors that had Madonna's face on them. So, so my head was replaced with a hand mirror with Madonna's face on it, as was the girl with me. There was a very tall, skinny girl that was in this with me. And we affected, the, we mirrored each other's, and we just sat there holding hands together very delicately with these hand mirrors. It was a very artsy video. If you, if you watch the, the Bedtime Story uh, song, it's on her Bedtime Stories album. Bedtime Stories yeah. album. Yeah, and, and I forget, the, the, the music video was, was done in a style of art that, that, ha, that's, that mirrored somebody's paintings, and, I, and I, I should remember who that famous painter was, but I can't. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was, it was very, very stylized and artsy and lovely. Uh, whether you like Madonna or not, it was a really cool video. Sure. Uh, and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers was was that was now that was a fun one. Uh, that was um, um, Soul to Squeeze. Yes. Squeeze. So it was a slower song of theirs. Sure. That I loved. One of their best. It was a good one, right? Uh, I got a bad disease. Boom, 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 boom. Right, exactly. Good baseline. <laughs> that took me a little bit. To yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the name, but I couldn't think of the tune. Right. And uh, so. I got to meet Anthony Kiedis and Flea and uh, oh, cool. and Chad, the drummer. They, and now, at, when we made that video, there was only three of them because oh, they're, they're, their fourth guy had already left and they hadn't replaced him yet when we made the video. I see. So, uh, so there was love, and I, uh, the three that I met were all delightful, lovely, laid back, easy to get along with, and people you'd hang out with in college. They were just so great. Yeah. And uh, how cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, Anthony Kiedis asked me at one point, he had a great idea because they, they just, they all loved me. And Chad, the drummer, <laughs> wanted to, wanted to do a shot. Again, imagery is everything in a music video. Uh, our storyline was uh, we were a traveling circus, a traveling uh, tent circus from the 1930s. So, uh, so that was all done in black and white, and and it just you were, throughout the music video you're following this 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 band of, of carnies. Sure. And I was the contortionist. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, I wore a top hat through a lot of it, and you know suspenders and like you know stretchy pants and whatever, and. Uh, so uh, at one point, Anthony Kiedis had this great idea, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Chad picked up our buddy Doug here by one arm and one leg and swung him around like in circles, <laughs> so I'd be airborne flying. I'm right. like, yeah, it's a great, it's a great idea. Yeah. Can we put some mats on the floor? You're yeah. right, because if I flew off and hit, you know, scrape my, my face with gravel or something, right. that, would, that would have been interesting. Uh, they ended up going like, yeah, that's a. I forget who the director was now on this, but uh, but it was like, yeah. That's 
that's a well, you know, let's 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 keep that on the on the back burner for later. Let's make sure we get the shots we already have planned, and we'll get we'll see if we get to it. We never got to it, which is just fine. It's fine. But I, I was complimented that they thought of me to do a little something special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know who was in that video too? Is Chris Farley. Yeah. Really? Yes. Really? Yes, he was. He was he was our uh, our. Uh, what do you call it? The ring, ringmaster. Oh, okay. And uh, but you know, but it was but it was all behind the scenes while we're traveling and setting up. That's all the shots you saw. You never saw us in full performance mode. Okay. So he was a cigar smoking, like you know. I'll have to check that out. So yeah, did you get yeah. to meet Chris Farley? I did, and he was lovely. He was a really super nice guy. A lot, a lot of those, you know, big broad comedian loud people uh, that you know from film and TV. When you meet them in person, they're often very quiet and docile and... They just let it all out for performance. They get it out, yeah. they have their outlet, and Weird Al Yankovic's like that. I did uh, five episodes of his t kids' TV show called The Weird Al Show on Saturday mornings. And, uh, you know, in the skits we were in, was like a, it was like a fake uh, exercise show on TV. And so we showed up in five episodes. And um, and he was like this exercise instructor, and he was crazy, and he was loud, loud, loud. Oh, you wearing a big blonde wig, and he was, like, it was nuts. And then uh, you know, between takes and at lunch break and whatnot, he was just like almost boring. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sure. It's because he gets it out of his system. Yeah. Maybe and, and, and on a day like that too, a comedian needs to save it for the camera too. You know. Right. Unless you're Robin Williams, and then he, <laughs> he just goes all day. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. I've heard that. I've heard this story. I've heard you tell a story. Uh-oh. Am I going to tell it again? <laughs> if you would, because it's priceless. Uh -oh. I don't think Jack's heard it here. Uh-oh. We'll um, Happened on the set of the Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Could you regale us with that story once more? This would be the one on a cold on a cold night in downtown Vancouver. In a tent? In a tent. Yep. With Jessica Alba getting a foot rub. Okay. Well... <laughs> Oh gosh. The Silver Surfer was a, a full head to toe prosthetic makeup. I was glued into a face mask and a body suit that, that was all glued to me. It made me a beautiful. I was, was talking about beautiful proportions. Hello. That's the best body I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and it was glued on, unfortunately. Um, so, uh, being tucked into my rubber suit, uh, uh, we were filming downtown Vancouver and it was cold out. It was in the winter months. And uh, it was a night shoot we were doing, so it's even colder. So between shots or between takes, we would run to a little heating tent where our cast chairs were set up and we had a little space heater in there. And it was like, you know, they're being taken, trying to keep us from shivering on camera. Right. Well, I go back uh, and sit in my little chair. I'm tucked in the corner of the tent with my chair. On my right side was uh, Yoan Griffith's chair, Mr. Fantastic, uh, who played Reed Richards. So he comes in and sits down, then Jessica comes in, comes in right after him and sits down in her chair right to my left. So I'm sandwiched between the two of them, and I'm in the corner, so they're sort of like uh, uh, at a right angle from okay. each other, you know? Right, right. Um, so Jessica, and, and on a movie set like this, we all get to know each other really. You become a big family. So uh, Jessica and, and, and uh, Yoan had been through a lot together because this is their second movie together, of course. So they know each other really well, and so the familiarity means that she throws her foot into his lap and says, I think you need to massage my foot now, big brother. And then he's like, oh, dear. So he dutifully takes her foot and, and is like massaging it and, and rubbing some kinks out. And uh, her leg is draped across my lap to, over to, to Yoan. So I'm kind of <clears throat> not a good time to be locked in when you feel 
a fart coming on. <laughs> right? Right? So now, I, so I'm faced with, okay, do I break up the love fest to say, excuse me, and exit the tent? Or do I just think to myself, hey, I'm in a rubber suit. <laughs> Who's going to smell this, right? Right. I'm going to take my chances. So I sat there, and I did the little lean off to one side. Nobody noticed. No, no, I went undetected, and I let a quiet one out. I was like, sold. Good. <laughs> until, until I look at Yoan Griffith, and he's sitting there with rubbing her foot, and then all of a sudden he stops for a minute, looks up, his... Expression changes ever so slightly, and then he goes back to rubbing her foot again, <laughs> as a gentleman would do without saying anything. At that very moment, Jessica looks at him and says, you smell ass, don't you? <sighs> Which means I did not go undetected, and they're talking about my ass. So I, uh, so I, uh, uh, well, thank heaven, though, uh, uh, Jessica saved the day when she said, you know, why do they have to park those porta potties so close to this tent? Oh. I don't know. I'm like, yes, Jessica, why? <laughs> we should write a letter to someone and get that fixed. Thank you. For, just you know, right. It's not, I'll, I'm going to talk to somebody for you. Mm. How embarrassing was that? But yet, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry I had to make you relive that. No, but I, no, I, no. I, well, you know what? Yoan Yo had never heard that story. I mean, he, he, <laughs> we were at Dragon Con together last year, and we were doing a Silver Surfer, uh, a Fantasy Four sequel panel uh, at Dragon Con in, in Atlanta. So it's just he and I sitting on a, on a at a table with microphones and our moderator and somebody from the audience said, um, "What's the what's the weirdest thing that ever happened on the set?" And I said, "I got a story." <laughs> It'll top that, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, "Yo, and you may not remember this happening. I hope you don't, but you're about to relive it with me right now." So I told, and he was leaning. Oh, I've never seen that boy laugh so hard. He remembered though. He remembered the the the, the moment. He didn't remember me farting. <laughs> so, so now he does. Now I, I, I reminded it him. It wasn't the Porta John. It was <laughs> Doug. Mm -hmm. uh, Dougie. I've heard in past interviews that you would love to play Jack Skellington in a Broadway ad adaptation of Nightmare Before Christmas. Have you had any interested parties come in to you since you've heard mm -hmm. that? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That's why I keep mentioning it in interviews and hoping that someone will come and say, <laughs> Doug, I've got millions of dollars and I'm a friend of Tim Burton's. Let's make this happen. Um, I'm not sure who owns that. I think, does Tim Burton own that property? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't hear. No. I really don't know. Well, anyway, yes. The, the answer, the short answer is yes. Really? <laughs> that I would love to. No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, the short answer is yes, I would love to. No, no one has in power has said yes, let's do it. I see. I think that A Nightmare Before Christmas would make a great Broadway show. Yes. Yeah, and I would love more than anything to play Jack Skellington. Uh, I believe I'm built for it, and I believe I can sing. Okay. I think I can spin a yarn on, 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 on the musical front. I'd come see it. That's for sure. Yeah. That's very kind of you. <laughs> well, from your lips to God's ears. We'd have, they would have to um, develop a, uh, a mask that would work for it. Because I don't know if you've seen Walk Around Jack Skellington's at Disneyland. It's kind of it's a tough one to pull off to build. Right, I've heard of. Because you know, if you're stuck inside a, I've heard the Disneyland um, Jack Skellington has the round head, but when it comes down to the mouth, it's the actual actor's mm -hmm. mouth. Right. Mm -hmm. So, 
So it doesn't mirror the, what what you saw in the animated movie quite exactly. so much. But yeah, so I, I don't know. And for broad for Broadway, you'd have to have something that, that doesn't take five hours to apply every day because that would that would be that would get really old really fast. Yeah. Right. Something you can just slip right in and out of. That'd be nice. It'd be nice. So sure. yeah, yeah, it's, it's worth uh, it's worth investigating. I don't know. All right. I've never done Broadway before. That would be a great way to get a clean. You definitely it. should. Uh, you know, yeah. Get your feet wet that way. Well, that, that would be a that would be a full dive, I think, <laughs> into the deep end. All right, I've heard um, rumors you're going to be playing the operator, Ooh. and the upcoming movie called is it called the operator? Yeah, or can you talk about it now? Awesome. Yeah. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, uh, it's based on Marble Marble Hornets. Hornets. Marble Hornets is a very popular web series with millions of hits. Um, Marble Hornets was inspired by uh, was Marble Hornets was created by a, a, a bunch of kids uh, in um, Alabama that uh, that made this web series about this 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 quiet faceless sort of character that, that just shows up in places right and it's terrifying because he's always so really quiet and, and you don't know what his <laughs> intentions are and he just kind of like haunts uh, haunts this haunts every scene he's in. And of course, uh, what inspired them to make this this character, the operator, was the, was the Slenderman legend. Sure. Uh, and I had to look all that up, but um, it was a friend of mine, uh, John Soares, that I'd done another, another web series for called uh, The Danger Element. Oh. The last episode is yet to yet to come out, but uh, but I love doing that. Oh my gosh, I like web series. They're kind of fun. Right. They're fun. They're fun, and and and. and the filmmakers can can go off the charts and do whatever they want to make without a studio over over them. They they don't have much money. That's that's the, the downside. But the creativity is is rampant in web sure. series if they're if you're dealing with the right filmmaker. So John Soares, who I done the Danger Element for, sent me an email saying, Doug, I don't know if you have ever seen a web series called Marble Hornets, but here's a link to episode one. Start and watch. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, I, and I, I normally don't have time for this kind of thing, but I, oh yeah, I clicked. I watched. If John Soares is telling me to watch this, I, I must watch. And oh my gosh, I, I, you know, you're watching a, a handheld camera, sort of like found footage-looking thing. Sure. Very, very videotapey looking. And I'm thinking, oh, this, how good this can this be? But yet, I was sucked in so fast and so. Uh, so like like eyes glued onto it. It's easy to get sucked into it. I yeah. I started just watching the first entry and just oh I was hooked. I couldn't put it down. Right, right, right. And so it's very freaky. Very freaky. <laughs> the same thing. So I realized like when I saw the Slender Manny sort of looking character, the operator, I realized oh now I know why why my attention is being drawn to this. So it turns out that the, uh, John Soares, my friend, had had an internet connection sort of uh, uh, relationship with the filmmakers in Alabama. They were admirers of each other's work. Oh wow! And so, uh, so Tim Sutton of the team in Alabama, the operator team, uh, the Marble Hornets team, uh, got a hold of me on the Twitter. I love the Twitter, oh. and, and he sent he sent me a message and like, hey, just like. Hope you like our stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love Marvel Hornets. Ah! So we're right. going back and forth on Twitter, and then, and they had originally wanted me to come down to Alabama to do, you know, a few episodes of their web series, and, and I was thinking like, ooh, well, uh, it's gonna, I, for me to get on a plane and leave town, it's gonna, that's gonna cost a little bit, sure. just because of my of my time is. Uh, I wish I had more time to give away like that, but I just don't. Right. So. Um, so then I got a message from him later, like months went by, and he's like, well, you know what, hey, hang on. Uh, uh, 
Maybe we'll, we'll visit that idea later, but right, because there's, there's, it might be a movie in the works. Oh. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah. That's a different so story. Sh- sure enough, then, uh, yeah. Um, uh, Mosaic, a production company in LA that brought you like a lot of big movies, like a lot of uh, Will Ferrell movies. Oh, okay. Um, Jimmy Miller is the, the, the head of that production company. He's Dennis Miller's brother. Oh, okay. Um, and they're, so they, they're a management company that handles a lot of talent, and they also produce movies. So they were the ones that we were interested in making a movie version of Marble Hornets. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well, that's a pretty big deal now. It's turning into a big deal. Right. Uh, so, so they did indeed. Uh, so it was because of the, the kids in Alabama referring my name to the production company in L.A. saying, we really want Doug Jones for the, the operator character. And so, of course, they looked me up and go, oh, my gosh. And so Jimmy, Jimmy Miller was a big fan of mine, apparently. Right. And so it worked out really, really well that, like, everybody knew who everybody was and everybody was happy to be involved with everybody else's business. So right. it was really good. Um, you were meant to play the operator. I guess I was. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, it, so the movie will, will give you a very much a vibe of the Marvel Hornets web series. But still handheld camera found footage uh, sort of look. Uh, and and I and I did the the what you're supposed to do as that character. I stood in bushes. I stood in doorways. I stood in down hallways. I I stood a lot. But then, of course, uh, as the movie progresses and, and 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 comes to its climax, you'll realize what I'm what I've actually been doing this whole time. And that's the uh, that's the spin on it that, that that maybe the web series didn't touch on. So they they had their, the the movie has its own its own life. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see it. I that's can't. what I can tell you for now. And hopefully it'll be coming out in the fall of this year, 2014. That's what they're aiming for. It's, it's in the canon shot. They might want to do a couple of reshoots uh, to pick up shots to get some, some scenes filled in better. And that's all I know for now. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. I cannot wait to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cannot wait. I couldn't believe you were coaching from Fallen Skies when they first came up. Was it the end of season two? Yeah, when he landed, he came out. And then I found out it was you. I was blown away because I love that series. I'm waiting for the next season to come out. Oh, well, thank you. This is very soon, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Well, uh, yes, my character was introduced at the end of season two, but that was not me stepping off the the spaceship. Oh, really? That was actually a CG version of me. Okay. They hadn't cast me yet. They hadn't even called me yet. Yeah. (laughs) They they just, uh, I think they were, they introduced the character with like a, he steps out of of the the spaceship and makes a pose. It just stands there, yeah. And they fade to black and they roll the credits. Like, dun-dun-dun, cliffhanger! Exactly. (laughs) All right, so then they found out the show was picked up for season three then they had to start going okay now who are we going to cast <laughs> Is this right. so todd masters of masters effects uh they created they created all the aliens on the show via shveni and the skitters oh, wow. uh, uh, he uh he got a hold of me on the facebook yeah, again these How social medias are great great uh yeah, handy you know, devices aren't they? they're handy tools to <laughs> yeah now todd and i knew each other from before we he had worked on the original He'd come in and, and, and worked on the Mac Tonight campaign for McDonald's, really? the commercial campaign, many years before. So we knew of each other for all these years. And in the creature effects makeup indus- uh, industry, um, my name had been passed around so much that all those guys knew me, uh, e- even if they hadn't worked with me before. So, so Todd had, had worked with me like in the late 80s, and but we had seen each other at social events here and there in the, over the years, but never really worked together again until he calls me, or he got a hold of me on Facebook to say, hey, 
Uh, we're discussing a new character for Falling Skies. Do you know the show? Are you familiar with it? Would you be interested? And, you know, before I before I pitch any further with the producers, so I wrote back to him and said, yes, I would. I was already a fan of the show myself as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I so uh, I said, I would love to have a look. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I went in into his shop in, uh, in L.A. and um, saw the designs and was like, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful and alien-y looking. Right. Sort of like a, a mix of, of E.T. and Abe Sapien together, sort mm-hmm. of. Like, and he also has that sort of intelligent, uh, you know, the, 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 the being with all the answers. And They've been around. He's here to help, and he's here to, yeah. So um, I like his demeanor. I like his, his addition to the to the, the, all these poor people just on Falling Skies have been one one bad incident after another. It's like, yeah. can't these people ever get a break? Is the question you keep asking. So now having a friend fallen from uh, from outer space who has history with the Badashvili aliens that have taken over Earth. They took over our planet centuries ago, and we've been chasing them around the the universe ever since then, battling them and fighting them and and liberating other planets that they've tried to to control and take over. So, you know, we're sort of like, uh, and and the question remains, why? Why would we go to that much trouble to help other planets? What's in it for us? Right, right. So that's the question that you were left with. we're here to help, but why? Right. Our, do we have an ulterior motive? It's almost a love-hate relationship towards the end of the season three, I think. Yeah, wait, wait. Well, as season three progressed, yeah, well, my uh, my character Cochise uh, became very friendly with Tom Mason, played by Noah Wiley, and uh, you know, as the leader of my people and him as the leader of his people, we got to know each other and and and, and have like a cultural exchange. Even I got right. to learn about these humans. And at, in that last final episode of the season uh, is when the mothership, my mothership lands and my dad's on it with the, the main oh, wow. commander. Yeah. You, and you don't know that, he, that my dad is the commander. Uh, and uh, so, um, and that's when it's revealed that our ultimate plan all along was uh, was to collect all these humans up and put them in a safe camp somewhere, like a almost like a concentration camp, but just yeah. keep them out of harm's way. And we were gonna, we were gonna ship them off to Brazil and hold them there while we fought off the Ashveni. And uh, and that's where, where the, and so, you know, the w- Will Patton's character, uh, Colonel Weaver and, and Tom Mason were like, what, you want to what? <laughs> you know, we're people, we don't get shipped off yeah. to, you know, put us behind bars while you fight for us. It's our fight. And so we were like, you know, and, and, but from our perspective, it's like, guys, we've been at this for centuries. I was born on a ship in battle with the Ishveni. We know what we're doing. Trust us. It's for your own protection, but the, the humans weren't having it. So there was a bit of a rift. Yeah. Uh, but by the end of that season finale episode, um, you saw I gave everybody their, their guns back. And I set them free. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to Brazil, but please don't stay here. <laughs> get, get out of harm's way while, while we fight this fight. Uh, so season four starts June 22nd on TNT, Sunday nights All right. at, at 10 p.m. Uh, Coming right up. Yes, and this year it's 12 episodes instead of 10, so I it's going to be a little, little bit, little bit longer. Uh, it'll take you from, from you know, um, late June into, into hopefully late uh, August or early September. And... Um, so, uh, and this this year is going to be all completely different again. But as season, as the episode one opens, season four, 
within the first five minutes, you're going to be like, oh my gosh. Really? And again, can't these people get a break? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's, I, when I read the script for the first episode, I was like smacking my forehead going, what on earth? I don't even recognize the show. Oh yeah. my. So, but, so by the end of episode one, you're going to be like feeling really bad for everybody and, uh, and wonder where are the Volm. My, my, my race is called the Volm. Um, but I, I do make one visit in the first episode to explain to Tom Mason where we've been, what we're doing, and uh, and the tag, you know, the bottom line for me is that Earth is not our only battlefield with the Ishveni. We had to, we have other battles to fight, and our own our our own people were at risk. So we had to fly off and, and fight a battle on another planet somewhere else in the universe. And that left the humans a bit defenseless for a minute. Mm. And oops, sorry, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's gonna it's gonna get ugly really quick in season four, and everybody goes a little bit cray cray. Yeah. Uh, uh, the characters you've come to know, like uh, like uh, Anne Mason, who plays uh, Noah Wiley's love interest on yeah. the show, the Doctor, Doctor Mason. She's been like this, you know, this caregiving doctor person. And this season, she is a badass mofo, you know, really? like gun toting, you know. Sure. Chick with guns, and she's great. Yeah, it was really nice for her to be able to to switch it up and play something different this year. And uh, Seychelle Gabriel, who plays Lourdes on the show, who who is also a doctor on the show. Yeah. She was like the young intern that, that learned everything from Anne Mason. She has become more of like a, a hippie devotee of 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 this new entity that we're not sure of. Uh, we have uh, Tom and Anne had a baby on the show last year that was half alien it was oh, revealed right, remember yeah. oh yeah. really oh, yeah. half human half alien dna mm -hmm. not that far yet <laughs> right okay okay well you'll, you'll get there and so anyway, and it was maturing rather really quickly fast, for a baby yeah, yeah. so you're going to see where she's come yeah, yeah pretty quickly now she's matured even more than you think <laughs> by how the long time. after season three did it does it take place? Is it a year after? Uh, well, uh, the first the first five minutes of the show uh, is going to be mm, maybe maybe a month or so after after season three ended, and then we jump to about four months later. Okay. So, and that, that's when you'll find out what something bad happens right at the beginning of the show, and then you'll jump to four months later and see how that bad has has revealed itself to everybody. We're all going to be uh, in isolation from each other in a little, uh, in different for different reasons. Mm. Different reasons. Uh, isolation is sort of a theme this year for the, for this okay. season, um, and what happens to everybody when they're when they're separated from their support group? We all go a little bit crazy, mm -hmm. no? Uh, except for Cochise, my character, I'm still calm, collected, and cool. Uh, I have a small recon team left here on Earth while my while the mothership flew off to fight another battle. I have a few soldiers with me, but I'm. Uh, it's just we're here incognito. The Ishveni don't know that we're still here, and so I'm. We're kind of we've while everyone's sort of like isolated in captivity away from each other, uh, my Volm guys and I are kind of hiding out in the woods with hoods on, uh, so oh, wow. we're not spotted from the air. So there you go. And we make we make frequent visits to the humans to say, hey, everything's okay, we're still here. And we're, we're in communication with the mothership sometimes. So, it, so it's like, it's spotty. It's just spotty what happens. So yeah, the season will open up with just when you think they got a break, they did. They don't have they, a break. Mm. <laughs> Can't wait. But, but victory, victory does is on the way. Victory's on the way. I can promise you that. Now that I've finished filming season four, there's hope. <laughs> there's hope. I can't wait to see it. You have your own book. Ooh, my. Mime very own book. Mime very own book. Well, <laughs> yes. Much like the, my, the mime troupe from campus at Ball State University, Mime, uh, mime Over Matter, uh, 
mime is built for puns. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so mime very own book is a coffee table photo book full of pictorial puns. It's um, amazing. It's like yeah. a short film almost. Have you seen it? Yeah. I yeah. have. Yes. Oh yes. gosh, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, the idea was birthed at a. I was I was a celebrity guest at at a, at a publisher's birth at a publisher's um, sort of like convention party. They were having like a a, a a horror writers convention, and they had a a vampire ball to kick to kick the weekend off. I was a guest of the of the Vampire Ball, and one, a publisher from Chicago was there from Medallion Press. His name was Adam Mock. And he said, hey, can we, can you, I get a picture with you, Doug, for my kids? They love the Silver Surfer. Great. We posed. And he says, so is your background in like, uh, do you have like a, a, a mime background with all this movement that you do? And I'm like, yes, I do. And he goes, ah, oh, how would a mime write a book? Because, you know, he's a publisher. He's thinking writing. He's thinking, sure. he goes thinking, how do I, how do you, how do you capitalize on a mime as, as a publisher? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't think a mime would write a book. I think a mime would pose <laughs> for a book. That's what go. I said. I think he would tell it in pictures. That's a great idea. So the president of Medallion Press came walking by, and we're in the lobby of a hotel in Burbank, California. Adam Mock says to her, um, hey, uh, uh, what do you think of this idea? A mime picture book for coffee tables. She points at him and she says, I like it. Done. So uh, to that start of the whole ball, uh, my... I, I suggested we bring in a friend of mine, Scott Perry. Scott Allen Perry is a, a writer-director person that, that does a lot of YouTube funny bits. Sure. Uh, and uh, so we brought him in as a conceptual uh, writer f for these little images. And also, so he and Adam Mott collaborated on, on all of the ideas. Brought, Scott brought in his friend, uh, Eric Curtis, our photographer. So between... Adam, Scott, Eric, and I, we all share co-authorship of this book. Okay. Uh, so, um, so there's pictorial puns in there, everything from, uh, it's, it's a pop culture send-up. It's a, uh, we, we make fun of everything from movie posters, like uh, instead of uh, Say Anything with John Cusack, it's Don't Say Anything with Mime Doug Jones. <laughs> uh, uh, we do the, uh, have a poster of the Little Mermime. We have a poster of uh, 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 the Miming instead of the Shining. Okay. We have a poster of uh, the Miminator. That's the one I'll I be I'll be quiet. <laughs> um, we have uh, oh golly, and then famous works of art like Venus de Mimelo and the Mima Lisa, uh, <laughs> and the, oh, and, and me sitting in that that thinker pose. Instead of the thinker, it's me on a yes. toilet. This is a stinker with my pants down. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we also had, and then all all the other. Uh, there's a section of, of regular puns like we have. We have mime over matter. We have once upon a mime. We have, uh, oh gosh, mime, uh, a meeting of the mimes, a oh, one yes. track mime. Um, yeah, and one of my favorites was mime a llama ding dong, <laughs> mime a llama ding dong. <laughs> and then there's the Michael Jackson section of the book. That That's like, what I love. Oh my gosh, to re we uh, we recreated all those imagery of, of like famous Michael Jackson poses with me as a mime instead. Mm -hmm. um, and that we did uh, we called that section mime a say mime a sa mama kasa. Oh, very <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. I didn't I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Mm. Very cool. I, I had a lot of fun on that. So much fun on that. I love the Beatles. Um, the Abbey Road cover. Uh, yeah, Personally, yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I yes. love that. And, and the, the, uh, the John, John Lennon. Lennon. The Yoko Ono pose. Yes. Too. 
my um, here's what happened when I got your book. Uh -huh. I'm usually against e-readers, okay? Uh -huh. And I thought I didn't want to wait to go to the bookstore. It's like I want to look at this thing now. No. So I downloaded it, yeah. and um, I'm sitting there looking at it and realized that in the middle of the book. There was a flip book with you in the bottom right corner. The flip book was my idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give my, pat myself on the back for that. It was very neat. It'd be funny to have a section where we. Sure. Uh, you flip it, and it's about 40 pages of uh, flipping, where, where you see me pushing on a wall and pulling a rope or something like that, and it, and it, it looks great. It, it really, it plays. I sat there and uh, I timed my finger taps on the screen of the e-reader oh, so I could get you to do it as quick as I could. But yeah, 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 yeah. Just one more question okay. for you. What's been the most rewarding moment for you in your 27 years, is it? Uh, 28 years. 28 years yeah, yeah. of um, acting, being a mime, being a contortionist. Uh, most rewarding moment for you? Uh, I see the most re rewarding moments for me are, are the after effects. Watching, watching uh, what, what effect a uh, production you've been in has on the audience or has on an individual or has... Um, Moments like sitting at the Oscar Awards in 2007 wow. with, um, you know, with um, Pan's Labyrinth had uh, six nominations and won three of, uh, awards at night, one of them being Best Makeup. Right. So my makeup team, DDT Efectos Especiales from Barcelona, Spain, you know, standing up there at the podium with Oscars in their hands making an acceptance speech. That wasn't my award, but I felt very much a part of that team that, that, that uh, and it was, it was, that's very rewarding. Um, uh, and because it was an award, it feels very rewarding. Sure. But on a more personal level, the, the, the little rewards I get every day are the, the fan reactions I get. And uh, when people contact me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever, Instagram, right. to tell me, I love you so much, man. Uh, and and I, get, I get a lot of, um, a lot of uh, I think the, the movie... Uh, Pan's Labyrinth it would be a, a film that has had the most emotional staying power, it seems, uh, where I'll, I'll have a, a lot of, like, teenager, early 20-somethings, uh, uh, kids that ha have had a rough go of it. So they find something to connect with in Pan's Labyrinth. I can um, see that. And uh, so I've had every, everybody from, you know, a goth kid somewhere else in the country that sends me a little note saying, you know, that, that that movie is something they, they clung on to to help them get through a hard time. Uh, that would be an amazing feeling. That's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, my favorite story ever was a young lady at a, at a convention I was at in, um, in uh, uh, Belgium. She came up to me, was shaking at my table, and I, I grabbed her hands and said, is everything okay? And, I, and she had some scars around her wrists. And, so there's a lot of story there, and uh, her sure. sister had had been killed the year before, had been murdered the year before, and she had. So this this young lady had lost her will to live when her sister died, and she was feeling like you know why her, why it should have been me, uh, you know all those right. guilty feelings you feel when when a loved one goes, and and uh, and she said she was an artist herself, she was a, a painter and a singer, a dancer, an actress, and, and, and lost her will to create art her, um, when, her, when her sister died, so did her, her will to live. Sure. Uh, and she said she went to the movie theater to see Pan's Labyrinth, and that's what brought her back again. That's what, she went home from that movie so inspired by the relationship between the fawn and little Ophelia 
and had to look up who I was. You know, she wanted to know who the fawn was played by, and she went to found my website, thedougjonesexperience.com, and, yes. and she researched me, and she found out that I liked dolphins. So there she's standing with, before me that, that day with a, a, a canvas rolled up under her one arm, and she said, I went home. Oh, make it emotional. Oh, it's going to oh. happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's gonna okay. Happen. Let, him, let, him, let the tears flow. Just let him flow, baby. <laughs> so she said to me that she went home after she found out that I loved dolphins, and she was inspired to paint for the first time in a year. And she painted this beautiful painting of four dolphins that were kind of like in this beautiful upward motion. It was a very hopeful-looking painting. And it's a really good art. It was a gorgeous piece that she unrolled and said, this is yours. Wow. She was giving it to me. And, uh, and she said that that, you know, so to be a part of that story, to bring girl, a girl back from who was a walking zombie into wanting to live again and wanting to create art again. Um, and so I've, I've kept in touch with her over the years and she's, uh, she's uh, alive and well and happy and dating and, you know, uh, a, a, a very useful part of society. That's awesome. And uh, so, so to think that, uh, that a, a piece of art, a movie, can have that kind of influence on people to... That's rewarding. That's rewarding. Oh, absolutely. That kind of thing happens constantly with me at the convention circuit when I'm meeting people and I get somebody who's shaking and is nervous to meet me and tears up when they meet me and I can hug on them and and uh, and I hear stories about how they grew up watching Hocus Pocus and that oh, how great how, movie. Well, a girl just today here in, at the at Packrat Comics in Hilliard, Ohio, said. Uh, uh, she wanted me to sign her VHS copy of Hocus Pocus because that was the that was the VHS copy that her grandmother and she popped in. Oh God, I'm gonna do it again. This is terrible. This is terrible. You're fine, terrible. my friend. You're fine. Uh, that uh, that they, her she and her grandmother would pop in and watch it together every Halloween. And that was a tradition. And she lost her grandmother a year ago. And so oh, she man. so she breaks up in tears in front of me. I'm like, oh, sweetie, it's okay, it's okay. So is it you know it's very lovely that I can be. Without even knowing these people, I can become a part of their family tradition, you know. And That's then they can awesome. tell me about it when I when I hear about these stories and hear that that you know uh, uh, family moments that brought them together. I was a part of them and didn't even know it. That's talk about rewarding. That's very right, rewarding. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Wow, amazing moment. That's awesome. Well, I think that's really all we have for okay. you today, but I wanted to thank you oh, so much. So much. Oh, well, thank you, you precious puppies. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. It's, it's been it's, great to talk to you. It's been an experience, so thank you so yeah, much. Well, thanks for hanging out all day, too. Oh, no problem oh, yeah. at all. Totally worth it. Yay. All right, so that was our interview with Doug Jones. Oh, it was, oh, man, that was, so, that was surreal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On a cloud the rest of the night. Yeah, for sure. Totally was. He's such, again, just such a uh, nice guy. You had, you don't have any concept of the word nice until you hang out with Doug Jones for yeah. a little while. I, uh, yeah, I was reeling the next day and had to watch Hellboy 2. And <laughs> I love in the movie when he, uh, he Abe Sapien, and uh, Hellboy get to singing the Barry Manilow song <laughs> while they're drinking. That, um, what was it? Can't Smile Without You. That was awesome. Probably my favorite part of the movie. I'm actually going to end the episode on that song while I think about it. <laughs> Let's start it right here. Oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> also, at the very end of the episode, stick around. I asked Doug Jones. I had to geek out on him a little bit. I wanted to I wanted to sing the Mac Tonight song from his uh, early days McDonald's commercials with him, and he agreed to do it with me, so I'll tack that in at the very end of the episode here. All right, everyone, I think that's going to do it uh, for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, go onto the website, uh, look at pictures from our interaction with Doug. Uh, 
We'll have a link to his website, the Doug Jones Experience, mm. on there, and check out what he's up to and uh, where he's going to be. Uh, what else we got? We got. Uh, oh, yeah. There's the, the pictures, all the trailers. You'll be able to go see that. There, the, the, the Gotham trailer. The Gotham That's trailer. Right. Yep. Oh, uh, buy the Amazon app for your Android device. Um, Ooh, yes. We have the bonus podcast on there, actually. Oh, yeah, we, we do. Yeah. <laughs> almost forgot about it. We recorded it before <laughs> this. Uh, yeah. yeah, the bonus podcast spoilers of the new Spider-Man movie. We talked about it a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm going to make a link for the, the Apple one, too. Hopefully that'll work. Okay, if not, go on uh, the Apple Store and download Podcast Box, and you'll be able to find our app there. And there's the video game store and movie store so yeah get on uh if the people who have our app get on there and listen to our bonus app too and the people who don't well what are you waiting for go buy it listen to it it's easy all right um anything else that's it for this show all right we want to uh once again thank pack rat comics for throwing such an awesome event that day and thank the wonderful Doug Jones for allowing us time to uh, interview him. I want my free Tick comic. <laughs> the only one I didn't get that I wanted. <laughs> You'll get your Tick comic, I promise. So uh, I think that's going to do it. I want to thank everyone for listening again. And until next week, I'm Jeremy Colley. Jack Doherty. I'm Jeff. And we'll see you next time. Jeff. Bye, Jeff. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the clock strikes half past six, babe, time to head for the golden lights. It's a good time for the great taste dinner at McDonald's. It's Mac tonight. Come on, make it Mac tonight. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Of course, Brad. You just nurtured the child within me. Thank you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.